Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Earl Lewis and Nancy Cantor, editors of Princeton University Press's Our Compelling Interest series. The series focuses on diversity in racial, gender, socioeconomic, religious, and other forms. Earl Lewis is the founding director of the Center for Social Solutions and distinguished professor of history at the University of Michigan. Nancy Cantor is Chancellor of Rutgers University, Newark, and Distinguished Professor of Psychology. Some of the titles in the series so far include The Walls Around Opportunity, The Failure of Colorblind Policy for Higher Education by Gary Orfield, Out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity and the American Promise by Ibu Patel, and The Diversity Bonus, How Great Teams Pay Off in the Knowledge Economy by Scotty Page. Earl and Nancy, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Of course, you know, let, let's just jump right into it. So could, could you introduce this series and, and talk, tell us a little bit about the goal of it? So really the goal of this series is to consider the, the value of diversity from a positive standpoint as compared to the typical zero-sum framing that so often accompanies questions about diversity in the courts, in the media, in politics. So when we think about the value of diversity, for example, for democracy, How do we preserve civil rights and social justice and a sense of inclusion? What does it mean to really secure the fundamental rights for participatory democracy? And then when we think of the value of diversity for literally being a cohesive nation, for thinking about e pluribus uno, can we really make one out of many? And what does that involve? And then when we think about the value of diversity for the prosperity of our nation, how do we have full participation of all peoples, all groups in our nation, in innovation, in education, creating equitable economic growth? So we really look at this from the framework of the value of diversity as compared to the framework of the problems associated with capitalizing on diversity. As Nancy underscores the value of diversity, we also realize that in helping people to understand the value, we first had to define democracy and had to define diversity. And so we seek in each of the volumes to begin to say, what do we mean by diversity and democracy in this particular moment in history? And then how do we go about valuing it? But how do we also leverage that diversity and democracy to actually create a more prosperous society for all. And so defining, valuing, and leveraging diversity is really a core hallmark of this overall series. How did the idea for the series come about? The series had its origins in 2012, in a way. And so there was convening at the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I had uh, been named uh, the incoming president of the Mellon Foundation, and we brought together a cross-section of university administrators, legal experts, general counsels from universities, et cetera, to to begin to think through the implications of the Grutter and Gratz cases at that point uh, for colleges and universities around the country. That is, how do we make sure that we have all of the instruments in place Uh, to continue to diversify the classroom, diversify the campus, and at the same time be lawful. Over the course of that conversation, we realized that more and more folks than we thought 
actually didn't understand the law, let alone uh, the really warehouse of information out there. And so we thought, well, how can we help? And one thing that came out of that conversation in December of 2012 was the idea of perhaps a series where you bring together some of the most recent scholarship and information about diversity and democracy, put it uh, in a context of, of a volume and Princeton University Press became our publisher and then have a series of events that will flow uh, from the publication of each of those volumes. But that series became our compelling interest, a line from the Supreme Court decisions in the Gruden and Grouse cases uh, and a way for us to think about as we look to the future and not just to the past, do we have a compelling interest to ensure that diversity is defined, valued, and leveraged to help create a prosperous democracy? And I think one of the things that was really important in that 2012 conversation was that Earl and I had both been deeply involved in our roles at Michigan at the time in being involved in the Gruder and Gratz cases, and in particular in the notion that there was not only a specific educational value for all of being in a diverse environment, but that you could broaden that to think about the societal values beyond the classroom, as you all said. And I think that's really been critical. So as we chose topics and authors, we really wanted to go across the spectrum, if you will, of ways in which the value proposition of diversity would be played out from religious diversity to thinking about the educational opportunities to thinking about questions of leadership to thinking about innovation in a knowledge economy and so forth. And the idea being that again, diversity as it's often viewed is viewed from a very limited legal perspective as about rights, as about access, as about preference as compared to diversity as it actually plays out in our daily lives, in the economy, in the way in which we go across groups, in the way in which we bring up our children, in the way in which we live in our neighborhoods. And so we wanted to get really on the ground and out of the courtroom, if you will, and onto the ground and think about the value of diversity. How did you go about choosing the topics and authors for the series? We started uh, in a sort of classic way. So we pulled together an advisory panel uh, of experts uh, from a variety of fields inside and outside of the academy. Uh, and that group of experts helped to identify a potential set of topics. And then from that group, we also began to identify potential authors, sometimes from the advisory board itself, and then identifying individuals who were not part of that advisory board, at least not initially. And we realized that we had to start with a framing document. And so the first book is actually our attempt, and it's my attempt and Nancy's attempt uh, to sort of lay uh, the groundwork for the overall series. And so we brought in a handful of authors uh, who could talk about demographic change, uh, who could talk about the sort of conceptual notion of democracy, who can look at it uh, from an employment standpoint uh, and from a variety of other standpoints to actually begin to sort of lay the terrain. And from there, we said, okay, 
what are some of the big topics uh, that we need to think about? One was thinking about employment in complex organizations and society. Another had to do with religion. A third had to do with education. I mean, as we look to the future, is is about uh, the whole question of meritocracy and who's included and who's excluded. Uh, of how you began to change systems uh, and the ways in which people even approach the question of diversity, down to what does diversity mean if we're talking about the arts or if we're talking in a transnational way that is about not just the United States, but diversity across the globe? Because geography and history actually does matter when we talk about diversity, particularly it's linked to democracy. So it was that sense of moving from um, the suggestions of an advisory board, opening our minds to the possibilities, uh, and then reaching out uh, to experts, scholars, journalists, and others uh, who could help us uh, in a succinct volume uh, to talk about it. But one of the unique features of each of our books is not only having someone pen a long essay or book, but also have respondents. And so we wanted to make sure that the ideas out there are actually ideas in context, where others are actually responding to uh, critiquing, suggesting other ways to even think about a particular theme. Uh, and that's been a hallmark and a feature of each of the books. Could you tell us about some of the authors and books in the series so far? So we have in, in the various volumes a range of scholars from civil rights leaders and educational and political science leaders. Gary Orfield, who's run the Civil Rights Project, um, is the author of the of the latest volume, The Walls Around Opportunity. Uh, we have people who have been on the ground as experts in interfaith um, dialogue, Ibu Patel in his book, Out of Many Faiths. Um, we have demographers like William Fry talking in the first volume about the demographic revolution in this country, if you will. Um, we have economists, um, Anthony Carnevale, talking in the first volume about the role of diversity and thinking about who's going to lead the economy for the future. Uh, Scott Page, who's a systems theorist, organizational theorist, and um, the late Catherine Phillips talking in Scott's volume about how hard it is to really get people to value diversity and to work in groups. So it ranges across a variety of fields. Um, and that we really feel is, is the special nature, not only of what it means to appreciate diversity, but what it means to have a book series that really um, covers the landscape. Major demographic and political changes are, are taking place in America today, uh, seemingly as always. Uh, how has the value of diversity for democracy in a prosperous society shifted to respond to the changing social landscape? We believe that this series really underscores uh, the need um, to invest in the future. And if you can argue, and I think we do argue in each of the books in their own way, that talent is evenly distributed across the United States and, in fact, across the globe, but access to opportunity is not. And so when you begin to talk about the value of diversity, and then, and we begin to define it, we understand that making and creating pathways you know, for access to opportunity then not only redounds to the individual, but actually redounds to the society more globally. And in this way, what we end up saying is that if you 
understand, as Bill Fry argues in the first volume, that we will have a non-white majority by the fourth decade of the 20th century, by 2040 uh, at, at the least, uh, if not before, then how do we make sure that we are preparing all of those individuals? And, and here, here's how I think of it. And, and our colleague, uh, George Sanchez, uh, who's at the University of Southern California, told a story once. Uh, and it was a story about a meeting in Southern California. And it came down to uh, a question about raising taxes. And one of the people sitting there in the audience uh, was saying, why should I actually want to invest in someone else's kids and have my taxes raised uh, so they could go to better schools? And, they, and that line of thinking went on for a while. And then one person raised their hand and turned to the first person and says, may I ask you three questions? And the person says, sure. So uh, first question, do you hope to retire at some point? And the other person said, oh, absolutely. And the second question, do you hope to sell your home uh, to someone uh, when you retire as a way to fund your retirement? And the person said, oh, yeah, no, I plan to do that. And then the third question slash comment was, well, who do you think is going to buy your home uh, when you go to retire? So an investment right now in that other person's care is a down payment on your retirement plan. And you think of that metaphor for the rest of the nation. What's a down payment on our collective retirement plan if we don't make the investments uh, in uh, the range of Americans uh, who will be in a place to take care of all of us? Uh, by 2040 or 2050. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's brilliant. I love that. I'm I'm definitely going to uh, uh, use those three questions <laughs> in the future. Uh, in, in the introduction of the inaugural volume of the series, you state that too few had informed understandings of basic research on diversity and its value to a prosperous democracy. Decades of research and new research needs to be showcased to inform current debates. How does the series respond to the current conversations around CRT? affirmative action and the future of higher education in general? So I think one of the ways in which it responds is to really think about the degree to which when people are immersed in diverse environments, whether it's at work or in the classroom or in your neighborhood or in kindergarten, they will begin to see that there's as much within group variation as there is between group variations. And the ways in which we break down the notion of stereotypes of groups is really fundamental to what it will mean to leverage the value of our demographic diversity going forward in this country. And so it's, it's about getting people to see that you may not believe in the same common good, as John and Nozu said, but you might find common ground. And if you look in Ibu Patel's book, there's lots of conversation about the way in which you could find common ground. You know, all the debates now, CRT and affirmative action and state legislative actions against diversity, equity, and inclusion, all assume a very fixed notion of what groups are and who's within them. And they're really, in some ways, entirely naive because it's not the way life works out on the ground. And so what these books do is try to actually cement diversity 
and the experience of diversity on the ground, person to person, group to group, topic to topic, arena to arena that you are in, whether it's your workplace or it's your school or it's your family or it's your faith organization. The narrative, the storytelling of what the experience of diversity is. For example, in Scott Page's book, you really get a sense of what it means to reap the collective intelligence of a diverse group. And you realize that you actually come up with better solutions once you learn to listen and to respond and to reap those benefits of who's in the room. When we think about Gary Orfield's book about taking down the walls around opportunity, he's talking about restorative justice, if you will. He's talking about taking down those barriers that sideline so much of the talent pool. But he's talking about it in the context of benefiting everybody. And so what we're trying to do in this series is move from what I would call the zero-sum divisive stereotypes that divide us to a collective sense of prosperity and value that would come from really understanding each other. So uh, these, these next series of questions that I have are, are just going to get a little bit uh, more uh, into, into the specific books of the series. So Scotty Page's book, The Diversity Bonus, How Great Teams Pay Off in the Knowledge Economy. Uh, I was wondering if you could, you could share a little bit about uh, th this notion of diversity bonuses uh, and, and how it's uh, linked to a knowledge-based uh, new economy and also why the diversity bonus is more relevant now than ever. So I'm starting with a, a recent story. I was on a plane trip and sitting next to a gentleman who happened to notice I had a University of Michigan folder and he leaned over and says, are you a professor? And I go, indeed I am. I, I'm back being a professor at the University of Michigan and returned about five years ago. And so we chatted and somehow, not because of anything I said, he, he raised a question about diversity uh, and, uh, and began to say that, you know, he wasn't sure that it was all worth the investment that is out there on this diversity theme. And so I looked at him and I said, well, it all depends on what you mean. Now you probably haven't read Scott Page's book, The Diversity Bonus. I said, look, if you're looking for the tallest human being to touch the tallest point uh, on the wall, then you go with the tallest human being uh, to touch the tallest point because I'm not going to be able to get you uh, the same uh, as Manute Ball would have uh, when he was standing at seven foot seven. I said, but that's not a complex problem. I mean, when you get to complex problems, that's when you begin to see the diversity bonus. And what Scott has been able to demonstrate over and over again, both the mathematical modeling and a, a whole range of case studies, is that the more diverse the team working on the problem, the greater likelihood of a solution to the problem. And so it's not that diversity in and of itself is important in every instance, but in a world where we have more and more complex problems, it matters. You don't want to have the smartest kid from Harvard on the team because you won't get the same benefit from a solution if you have a mix of kids from Harvard and Bloomfield State uh, and someplace else. It is that experience 
and the lives they've led and the things they bring and the ways they ask questions that oftentimes lead to the diversity bonus that Scott's talking about. And so by the end of my conversation with my seatmate, he came to understand a little bit more about the diversity bonus and conceded in the fact maybe there are times when diversity actually is worth investing in. And you know, one of the things about a knowledge economy, as we all know, is that the role of artificial intelligence is becoming more and more permeating through a knowledge economy. Diversity is actually going to matter hugely in understanding how to make artificial intelligence tools useful for everybody. And what I mean by that is you really need diverse lived experience to understand, for example, the effect of algorithmic justice, the degree to which algorithmic biases in the tools that people are coming up with will disadvantage the knowledge economy. Diversity is really important and who is developing the next generation of technology that will rule our life. Uh, one, one of the books in the series, Out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity, The American Promise by Ibu Patel, I, I think this uh, this topic is extremely relevant right now as we're, we're seeing so much uh, religious hatred and, and, and rise of hate crimes against people of all, of all sorts of religions in America. Uh, but you know, in today's climate of conflict and distrust, and distrust, how do we affirm the American promise as being deeply inter intertwined with each other of how we engage with people of different beliefs? And what's at stake if we don't embrace religious diversity? Why should we invest of people of diverse religious and cultural backgrounds? There's no question today as we face global conflicts in Israel and Hamas war, as we think about um, the degree to which we have local conflicts, state legislation in 40 different states has been proposed against diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education and even in the school boards, the kinds of issues of what can be taught or what can't be taught in, in elementary school, in high school, in middle school. At the core of that is really this belief that we are not on the common ground, that there is no place in which we can come together, that we can't, for example, in a global conflict, see the humanity on the ground of citizens on both sides, that everything gets politicized and divided and framed in a sense of conflict. Take the other side of that. What Ibu Patel's book really unpacks is the value of coming together across groups, even those who believe very different things, who come from very different histories, who have very different grudges against each other, historical and contemporary. When you can get past that in common, everyday conversation, creating a sense of common ground that is safe for conversation, you go a long way towards debunking, if you will, those various grudges. You know, there's a phrase that Rupert Nikos, a wonderful psychologist, has called hibernating bigotry. Bigotry isn't hibernating anymore. It's out there, out front. And the only way, or one of the only ways, to really diffuse that bigotry to get it to hibernate again, if you will, and maybe even to debunk it, 
is to really get people across faith, across race, across class, across neighborhoods to talk. One of the most profound discoveries of the last 100 years is the unraveling of the human genome and DNA. And what the science tells us is that all humans share 99.9% of the same DNA. And so what does that mean? That means that all of human history has been written about one-tenth of one percent of difference. And so sit with that notion for a second. All of human history has been written about one-tenth of one percent of difference. One element of that difference and the narratives and the stories that we have created is all also our religious understandings and belief systems. Now, this discovery of the link of human history through DNA comes at the same time, at least in the United States, where more and more people are actually leaving the church, however defined, and more are declaring themselves secular rather than religious. And so you have the DNA discovery is on one hand, more people uh, saying they are not religious or at least not attending a, a religious organization or service on any kind of regular basis and these intense religious battles. And so part of what I think we see at this moment is the way in which religion as an organizing principle for not only creating faith understandings, but also for communal understandings highlights why Ibu's book is so important. That in a way, if that one-tenth of one percent of difference is the ways in which uh, we tell one story about ourselves, which permits us to forget the shared origin story and how we have 99.9% of similarity rather than difference, then it means that we have to come back and ask, what purpose does religion play? both as a way of organizing and constructing an understanding of the world, but also in a way of thinking about the elements of diversity and democracy. And so what I was saying, while the book is not about science, it's about religion, the book also underscores the relationship here between science and religion. Uh, to follow up with another book in the series, uh, Gary Orfield's The Walls Around Opportunity, uh, how does this book respond to the failure of colorblind solutions to unequal education? How does it fit into the book series overall? So Orfield's book is a powerful reminder that um, politicians and journalists and pundits can talk openly about colorblindness, um, but in the world in which most of us operate, we're actually color aware, I mean, as Gary notes in his book. Uh, as an instructor for more than four decades, I've asked the students at various times, how many of you have ever played uh, the racial guessing game? And they go, what's the racial guessing game, Professor Lewis? I say, have you ever walked down the street and seen someone who was ambiguous? And the next thing you know, you're trying to sort them. You're trying to put them into a box because whether you understood it or not, you have actually internalized uh, and been socialized to actually uh, be anything other than colorblind, uh, that you are color aware. And over the 40 years, I may have had at most four students out of thousands who said they never played the racial guessing game. 
uh, and and I'm still talking about those four students because I don't want to understand how they're so socialized so differently from everyone else that I've encountered, including myself. And I think what Gary's book does is remind us that where you're born, the family you're born into, the neighborhood you're born into, the school system that you attend, uh, the social economic opportunities that surround you, all of those intersect in ways that either create opportunity or limit opportunity. And so the walls around opportunity, as he notes, is defined in a lot of ways by those social determinants. And those social determinants are, have been created in a racial context. Colorblindness is a nice concept, but it's not something we have achieved in American life. And uh, Gary goes on to delineate that in great detail in his book. How can an expanded understanding of systemic racism and its impact on educational opportunity help us reap the benefits of our multiracial demography to continue with Gary's book? So one of the most important things to understand that Gary really unfolds for us is that history has its effect on our ability to see the expansive talent pool in our own backyard. We often think from the day we are in going forward, and we forget to look back in order to look forward. If we're really gonna look forward as a country, we've gotta look back. We've gotta look back on the, on the ground and see how we've created segregated schools, segregated by race and class at a level that is, is really like Jim Crow level. How we have disequalized or, or disbanded, if you will, the sense that everybody has an equal opportunity to start on third base. We've got students in our own backyard who could, if they started on third base, get the home plate easily. But they don't start. They start maybe on first base if they're lucky. They don't have the kinds of pre-college curriculum. They don't have the counseling. They don't have experienced teachers. They don't have exposure to models in different, in different fields that really would pump them up, if you will, to go on and to be that person at the AI table or to be that person doing um, the next financial technology company or to do an innovation because they're just not seeing it. And they're not seeing it, not because they don't have the assets, but they're not seeing it because there are these walls around opportunity. So how does that relate to how we reap the diversity bonus of the next generation? We've got to look in our own backyards and look for the assets that are there, the talent pool that's there, rather than thinking of a deficit mentality. You know, one of the things I always am upset about is when I hear admissions people talk about, we want to recruit students who can rise above adversity and come to our institution and reap the benefits of our education. Let's turn that around. We want our institutions to reap the benefits of the diverse lived experiences of our students. You know, when I, when I sit in my university with people who were formerly incarcerated, and they're reading Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow, phenomenal study of the effects of criminalization in our country. 
It's the students who have lived through it who can teach us about what it means to really have the effects of a carceral state. That's the kind of lived experience that we want on the ground. But we're very clouded by our sense that these are people with deficits as opposed to looking at the assets that are out there. And so if you think about the demography of the future, it's full of talent in our own backyard, but we're not letting them get across the fence and we're not letting them get to our table. And we will be at a disadvantage as a country and as a world if we don't let people get over those walls and get to the table and bring the assets of their lived experience to the table. Nancy, Nancy put it well. I, I would add one thing, and only because I was struck by something the other day in, in a meeting. And it goes back to the metaphor I used earlier about one generation um, investing in a current generation to put a down payment on a shared future. And according to most recent statistics, by 2030, the youngest baby boomer will be 65 years old. And so that group of folks born after World War II uh, and who came of age uh, during the civil rights struggle and uh, the Vietnam War, that generation is passing through. That generation now accounts for 56% of the wealth in the United States. Thinking about Gary's book and thinking about lowering the walls of opportunity means that the baby boom generation, which I'm a part of, uh, is now needs to think about investing in that later generations because those are the folks who will be shaping the future that they get to inherit in 2030, 2035, 2040, uh, and beyond. We have a small window, not a long window, to make the right choices. In our current environment, there's there's so much uh, debate over, over teaching history, uh, a, a desire on behalf of some to censor uh, history because they, they don't like uh, what it might say about the past. But 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 of course, you know, as as we know, too, you know, we, we have to study history, study the past in order to avoid repeating, repeating it. So how do we really take this this seriously, take this challenge seriously of not uh, of not repeating the past? Yeah, I, I, I always chuckle when people uh, tell me they have to run away from history. Uh, and, and I keep going, you're not going to run very far uh, because the history is all around me. It is in the names on the streets in your town, it is on the signage at the bottom of buildings where it has a cornerstone. Uh, it is there in the curriculum in your kids' schools. Uh, it is in the ways in which you name yourself and the others in your family, they're all attached to history. And so we can debate whether or not uh, the country should begin 1607 or 1619 or 1776. But whatever date we invest in is each attached to a history. Uh, and that part, and I think we'd be better served if we don't debate where we start but debate how we make sure that we include all of the actors uh, in the story. 
and, and a, a new book, Man Black Girl, ends up uh, talking about uh, the ways in which we have told American history as if Native peoples uh, weren't there. Uh, and um, in a volume in uh, Deadless for the American, American Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, Phil DeLoria and colleagues uh, entitled that volume, uh, Native Futures. Uh, and in part because just one group we've actually assigned only to the past as if they aren't a part of the present. And so what does that mean, right? How do we begin to see, in this case, Native Americans in the present, let alone the future, if we only assign them to the past? Or if only you capture uh, African-American history in three points in time, uh, one in 1619, again in 1865, and then you get to King uh, and his speech in 1963. A lot happens between 1619 and 1865. A lot happens again between 1865 and 1963. And history doesn't end in 1963. And so how do we explain these moments if we're actually going to engage in a certain kind of historical amnesia? And so part of, I think, the project certainly of this series and the project uh, of many series is to remind us that our history is not to be uh, feared. Our history is not to be ignored. Our history is to be engaged, to be interrogated, to be examined, and to be re-examined. And in a way, that's the only way that you can define value and leverage diversity and its role in creating a prosperous democracy. This project, it's it, there, there's so many directions that that you can you can take it in. But, you know, just now that we, we've sort of reached uh, near the end of the interview, I was wondering if you could just discuss a, a major takeaway uh, from the series uh, and from these volumes. And, and also just, uh, you know, maybe introduce a little bit of some of the upcoming volumes that, that you two uh, are, are working on. So I think a major takeaway from the series and from the latest volume that Gary Orfield did is really that we have to take history seriously because we cannot leave democracy, diversity, and its value to just everyday practices. One of the most interesting things, for example, in the Orfield volume is that he traces the decades post Brown v. Board in which our de facto and de jure practices of residential segregation look to school segregation as intense as was true in pre-Brown v. Board and in the Jim Crow era. Just think about that. In Northern progressive states, like New Jersey, for example, where I live, the schools are as intensely segregated by race and class as they were pre-Brown v. Board in the South. We cannot leave history to just march on because we will just recreate the powerful sorting mechanism that has created opportunity for some and a lack of opportunity for others when talent is spread all across the board. And really at the heart of the value of diversity for democracy and prosperity, which is what this book series is about, is the notion that everybody has something to contribute and that we all need to value the contributions all around us. 
I would add that another uh, takeaway is just that um, we are in control. I mean, I think part of what we seek to remind ourselves and one another in uh, both the series and in each volume is that the stories that we tell, the events that are described, the analyses that are offered, follow uh, human action. That in every instance, um, we collectively speaking, have uh, helped to create the situations um, that Nancy just uh, referenced a second or two ago. And so as we look to the future, we ask, so what other kinds of questions do we need to put on the table? What other kinds of um, programs do we need to introduce uh, to begin to shape uh, this understanding that not only are we in control, we can also change the future um, by our actions. And so we'll have subsequent books uh, dealing with leadership and, and books that began to look at and try to deal with the built environment and architecture, Nancy referenced the residential patterns, but where people live and how they live are influenced by questions of diversity and democracy as well. There's questions of immigration. Uh, and we also know that our story is not just a story about the US. Uh, our notions of democracy and diversity uh, have uh, legs, they travel the globe. And so we want to understand that uh, in a comparative way as well. We have questions of the arts and the ways in which uh, we can imagine the arts uh, helping us to understand. I, I have often said that uh, the one thing that Dick Cheney and President Obama uh, agreed upon uh, was what they took away from Hamilton in the play. Uh, and so there's this moment where you can get people who didn't agree on a whole lot of things to sit and see the same play and walk away thinking, they basically saw uh, the same story. How is that possible? The arts can create space and opportunities and that sometimes you won't get uh, from a, a volume or from a podcast or, or even from something else. Um, there are other pieces that we're looking at when we look at teams and sports and uh, other ways of imagining uh, how people come together. So we have a handful of volumes that are in uh, the works, um, more yet to come. Uh, we believe that this debate uh, won't go away. The recent Supreme Court decision being one thing, uh, the January 6th uh, insurrection uh, being something else, uh, where the question over democracy, diversity, and opportunity uh, will be front and center uh, for a long time. And we hope to be part of that conversation. Yeah, it, it, this this series uh, you know, certainly goes into depth on these topics. Uh, more more than any series that I've seen coming out right now. So I so I, I highly recommend that uh, people go and and check out Princeton University Press's Our Compelling Interest series. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Earl and Nancy. It was great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you.